for tonight, 1 Samuel chapter 17 in your Old Testament Bibles. And uh, if you have your place there, we left off last week right around verse 33, 34. So I'm going to pray and then we're going to jump right into it. Amen? Amen? Lord, thank you for this evening where we can join together our hearts in worship to you. And now we pray that you would guide us in our time in your word together. And we thank you for the timeless truth of the Bible. Speak to our hearts, Lord, tonight through the pages of your word. And we're grateful in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Well, the principal character moving uh, forward from where we are here in 1 Samuel on is, of course, David, as we have been mentioning. His name in Hebrew is pronounced David. His name means beloved. Only one David mentioned in the entire Bible. His life is divided primarily into four stages. We're right now in the shepherding years. But very soon uh, hereafter, it will become the hiding years. About 15 years, he will be on the run from King Saul, who will attempt to kill him because he's jealous of David. That will turn then into the fighting years where David is a warrior, and then finally his reigning years as king of Israel. And uh, I'm going to share a map with you to kind of put in perspective where we have left off, because this story, chapter 17, is one of the most popular stories in all the Bible, is the story of the battle of David and Goliath. This is actually a a view of the place where this uh, transpired in Israel. This is the Valley of Elah. At the beginning of chapter 17, it tells us all this. I'm just giving you kind of a pictorial uh, view of what we're reading. The Valley of Elah goes, uh, as you can see across the screen, and hugs in between these two mountain ranges. And what the Bible says is that you have the Philistine camp on one mountain, you have the Israelite camp on the other mountain, and the battle happens between them in the Valley of Elah. So this is where this story is taking place. And as we've been going through 1 Samuel, we've been kind of gleaning different principles from these chapters. And last week, we already looked at two of them. So just by way of quick review, uh, the enemy will always play on your fears. We talked about how that was uh, the tactic of Goliath. He was all about intimidation. Now, he's an intimidating figure to look at. He is literally a giant. This is not a fable. This is not fee fi fo I smell the blood of an Englishman. Okay, this actually happened. That's just a kid's fable, Jack and the Beanstalk. But this one actually happened where Goliath measures six cubits and a span. And we talked about that in ancient measurement. That's about nine feet, nine inches, somewhere in that range. I talked last week about the giant race of people and how that came about. Uh, You can listen to that last week if you weren't here. I'm not going to cover that again. But Goliath is an intimidating figure, not just by his size, but what he says. He's the first trash talker of the Bible. He's trash talking David. He's intimidating this young guy. David at this time is only somewhere between 15 and 17 years of age. So um, he's uh, outsized in terms of physical uh, strength and appearance. But how many of you understand David's not outsized because he has God on his side? And so God is the one who's going to fight for him, and God is the one who always fights our battles for us. But Goliath is kind of a picture. There's always a danger of using too many, 
you know, parallels, like every story means this and means this. But, you know, just broadly speaking, if Goliath represents the enemy, the enemy also will try to intimidate us. The, the enemy will always speak things that are fearful, whispering them into our head. And we have to constantly be, as Paul says to the Corinthian church, taking captive every thought and making it obedient to Christ. Because the enemy, Satan, loves to play on our fears as well. To intimidate us, to cripple us, to try to uh, discourage us. And, uh, and so that's kind of this principle with Goliath. The enemy will always play on your fears. And then the other one we looked at last week was also this. That when you decide to get serious with God, you can expect to have your critics. Because here young David is with a heart for God. And he is too young to fight because he's not of military age. He had to be at least 20 or older. Again, he's probably 15 to 17. But his father, Jesse, sends him on a mission with some cheese and crackers, literally, to go to the front line and to, and to give some supplies to his brothers. He has three older brothers who were fighting in this battle. And maybe I shouldn't say fighting because none of the Israelites were brave enough to fight Goliath. So the whole army of Israel was paralyzed on their mountain, on their side of the valley of Elah. And David goes there one day delivering some of the supplies, some food to his brothers. And he overhears two things. He overhears that King Saul has given a reward to whoever is valiant uh, enough to go fight Goliath because the whole Israeli army is intimidated and fearful. And, and Saul said, uh, listen, I'm going to give you great riches, and I'm going to give you my daughter, his youngest daughter in marriage, and I will exempt you and your family from taxes. And yet that wasn't appealing enough to any of the guys to, to get them motivated to fight Goliath. But David overhears that, and he's intrigued by it. Now, he's more motivated by wanting to please God and honor God, and, and he's angry that the name of God is being maligned by this Philistine, uh, this uh, pagan, this heathen giant. And so he, he, there's something that rises up within him. And, and then the other thing is that he, he just, you know, literally not only hears the reward, but he hears the intimidation from Goliath as he taunts the Israeli army. And so, and David just, you know, says there in the, in uh, chapter uh, 17, verse, um, Verse 26, he says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And what happens then is his oldest brother Eliab hears him say that. And he's like, you know, you're a punk kid. Like, go back and, and watch daddy's sheep. Like, why are you even here? Thanks for the cheese and crackers, but be on your way. And it actually says that Eliab was angry. He was angry at him. In verse 28, his anger was aroused against David. And he says, why did you even come down here? And David gave this answer, like, what have I done now? You know, and so, and, and so the point is, like, David was anxious to defend the name of God. His brothers and the whole Israelite army was not. And when David got courageous and wanted to get serious about honoring God and living for God, look, look here at, at his own brother, like, like he was critical of, of David. And look, this must have run deeper than just this conversation. Here's why I say that. You might want to write on the margin of your Bible, Psalm 69, verse 8. Because much later in life, David will write Psalm 69, verse 8, which says this, I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's children. And he had already written in the Psalms also about, though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will never forsake me. So he, he, there was some, you know, every, somebody once said, every family this side of the Garden of Eden is dysfunctional. 
right? Um, but there was something deeply dysfunctional about David's family that he would write in the Psalms that his mother and father have rejected him and that his brothers have treated him like an alien. He's very alone, but because he has this strong relationship with the Lord, he's never alone, right? I mean, we can, it, it, that seems like a contradiction, but, but you, you can be very alone and yet never alone because you have the Lord. And so, this is where we left off last week. Let's pick up the story. So David, David is just, you know, inspired to fight when nobody else wants to fight. He's got, he's got this courage. And so in verse 31, it says, now when the words which David spoke were heard, they reported them to Saul, that's the king, and he sent for him. And then David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him, because of the, the Philistine, Goliath, your servant will go on and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are a youth, and he a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep his father's sheep, and when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. Moreover, David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. So you got to love the courage of this young man to do something as a young teenager that, that, that the guys much older than, than he was in the Israeli army were not willing to do. But I love what he says here because notice, notice what he does. And this is principle number three for you note takers. Faith builds upon faith. He begins to recall the faithfulness of God at other times in his life. You know, it looks like at first he's just boasting about his own strength and, and his own courage when he kills a lion and he kills a bear with his bare hands. But right after he just recalls all that, he says, well, if God delivered me from them, from the bear and the lion, he will, he will deliver me from this Philistine. Like he's going to take care of me in the same way that he took care of me when, when I killed the lion and the bear. And he gives credit to God. He says, you know, God was the one really behind that. He enabled me and gave me the strength to kill a lion and a bear with his bare hands. I mean, this was a, a mighty courageous young man who, because of his relationship with God, he is able to translate that into future um, difficulties. And, and recognize that as God was with me in those previous difficulties, he's going to be with me now. That's important. Why do I say this? Because there, there will be constant times in the course of our lives where we will encounter one difficulty after another, one challenge after another. Please, listen, I'm not the best at journaling. I don't, I don't really do that well, but some of you are really good at it. But at least make some kind of mental note. When God is faithful to you, in a certain situation, remember that. Write it down or remember it, record it. Because you'll need to remember that the next time. Because there will be a next time. I mean, that's just the course of life until we get to heaven. We will be plagued by one difficulty after another. On some level. Now, there are seasons. There are some seasons where, and some of you probably are like, yeah, I'm in the thick of it right now. Thank you. But there are some seasons when, when the difficulty is heavy, and then there are other seasons when it's not as heavy. 
I'm not saying that life is a constant stream of misery, but I am saying that because we live in a fallen world, we will encounter difficulties and trials and, and challenges, and when we encounter those things, we need to recall the faithfulness of God. And faith builds upon faith, because we can go, okay, I remember when God was faithful then, and I remember when he was faithful then, and if he was faithful then, and then, and then, he's going to be faithful now. And this is what David was doing when he was recalling the faithfulness of God. So keep reading with me. So Saul said to him, the end of verse 37, Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. And so Saul clothed David with his armor, because, you know, he's a young kid. He doesn't even have a, a, a uniform or, or armor. Saul clothed David with his armor, and he put a bronze helmet on his head. He also clothed him with a coat of mail. And David fastened his sword, this is Saul's sword, to his, own, to his armor, and tried to walk, for he had not tested them. And David said to Saul, I cannot walk with these, for I have not tested them. And so David took them off. So here's this picture of this young guy with a grown man's, you know, armor on. And he's like, this is clumsy. You know, I can't even walk with this. And it's oversized and it swallows me up and he takes it off. It's a good principle for us. Look, you can't fight in another man's armor. In other words, when you do encounter whatever challenges you might face, you better have your own relationship with the Lord. You can't fight in someone else's strength. That's their experience. That's their armor. That's their life. But as much as we would love to just build on someone else's strength, you, you have to have your own personal walk with Jesus. You have to have your own relationship with him and walk in that strength and fight in the strength of the Lord. And so there's this clumsy thing here that happens and so he just, he just takes it off. He says, I, I, I can't wear this. And then he took his staff in his hand, and he chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in a shepherd's bag, in a pouch, which he had, and his sling was in his hand, and he drew near to the Philistine. So I'm going to put the, the map back up on, on the screen for you. There is uh, a brook... Uh, right at the base, about in the center of the screen, I've, I've marked it there with an X. There's a brook there at the base of this mountain on the side of the Israelite camp. In fact, um, I've only been there once uh, when, you know, I've taken about 18 different groups over the years to Israel. And we have one coming up in a couple of weeks with, with uh, many of you. And um, it only just so happened, it's not on our normal stop among our tour of, of the Holy Land um, because it's, it's not really along the route. Um, but there was this one occasion where our flight got in actually earlier than the hotels were ready to take our group. And so along the way, Ronnie Cohen, our tour guide that I've worked with for some 20 plus years now, he says, let's stop by the Valley of Elah and we'll have a, the Bible study there. I actually have a picture of Austin, our uh, middle uh, child, went on that trip when he was about 10 years old. And I have a picture of him picking up smooth stones from the Valley of Elah. And so this is that valley, and uh, there's a brook there, and David takes out five smooth stones from the brook because he is going to use his slingshot. Now, 
Don't think, for those of you old enough, I'm going to date myself. Don't think like Dennis the Menace uh, slingshot, okay? Like, like a shaped in a V with a you know, rubber band of elastic and you know, you're shooting stuff that way. That's not the kind of sling that they, that they were using back in the day. Here, here's a picture of what they uh, would have used, something like this. It was, it was a leather pouch with two leather uh, strands, uh, strings along the side of the pouch. One with a, a, a circular knot on one end of it, so you'd put it around your wrist, or you'd put it around at least a few fingers, so that, that would hold the sling from flying out of your hand. And then the other one, you would wrap around so you could get this, this wheeling motion. The stones that were used in a sling at, these, at, at this particular time were, because they've uncovered some in archaeological digs, they were basically the side of a billiard ball. So you're talking, you know, like, like to play pool. So it's not, you know, something, something a little smaller than a tennis ball. Um, and, and so we're not talking little pebbles here. We're, we're talking, you know, some pretty sizable stones, something a little smaller than a tennis ball. And Israelis could, uh, and still even today, I've seen Israelis use the sling like it's with amazing precision. But they can, they can sling one of these stones. Are you ready for this? 400 yards. They can hit something with precision within 200 yards. That's two football fields. And it travels at about 150 miles an hour. Because you build up enough momentum with this, with this movement. Um, in, in Judges chapter 20, it mentions about the tribe of Benjamin and how the Benjamites were left-handed and that they were... Um, with great precision, it says, I think it's Judges chapter 20, verse 6, somewhere in there, where it says the Benjamites with their left hands could take the, the, the sling and they could hurl stones within a, a hair breadth. That's the way it describes it in the Bible. Like with such precision that just like the breadth of a hair, they can hit a mark. So um, this was a formidable uh, weapon. Uh, in the hands of somebody who knew how to use it, for sure. You know what's interesting today, the, um, the Israeli army, the IDF, the Israeli Defense Force, has a, a defensive military uh, system, air defense military system, called David's Sling, that they use today. And it was developed, this air defense system was developed by an Israeli team and also a U.S. Uh, team, a U.S. Um, defense uh, contractor, Raytheon. Now, some of you work for Raytheon. Raytheon has a building right here in Leesburg. So Raytheon helped an Israeli team to develop David's sling, and it is used uh, today to intercept enemy planes, drones, tactical ballistic missiles, medium and long-range rockets, and um, and, and various uh, missiles, cruise missiles. So uh, that's what they call their defense, the air defense system today is David's sling. And so David's sling is still killing enemies today. Um, back to our Bible study. This is what David gathers here. And this is what he's going to use. Now, some kind of, almost in a humorous way, wonder why he chose five stones. I mean, if you, if you, if you really are you know, believing God is going to give you the victory, isn't one stone enough? 
Um, but, but some like to point out the fact, and it is mentioned in 2 Samuel chapter 21, you don't need to turn there, that Goliath had four relative giants, four relatives in his family who were also giants. They're mentioned in 2 Samuel 21, verses 18 to 22. David and his men will later kill them as well. So some, some are saying, you know, if Goliath goes down and his four relatives come after me, I'm ready with four more stones. Uh, so that's why he perhaps chose five. But otherwise, you know, he's just, he's just being prepared for battle here. And so, and so here he goes. It says in verse 41... And so the Philistine came, this is Goliath, and began drawing near to David. And the man who bore the shield went before him, because Goliath has an, an armor bearer, like he needs one, but there he is. And the man who had the, had the shield went before him, and when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him, he hated him, for he was only a youth, ruddy and good-looking And so the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? Now, let me point out to you that that was actually um, a statement that was a lot worse than it sounds. Because the word for dog in Hebrew is kelev. Um, We have an English version of the name Caleb comes from kelev, meaning dog. And this isn't to say that this is what the name Caleb means today, but... Uh, in Old Testament uh, scripture, in Deuteronomy 23, verse 18, the word dog was a euphemism. Kelev in Hebrew was a euphemism for a male prostitute. So he, Goliath is taunting David by saying, what do you think I am, just a male prostitute that you're coming after me with a stick? Like this is a much more disparaging thing than just saying, am I a dog? He's actually using a euphemism here that in Hebrew was uh, a, a much um, more disgusting than just saying, you know, am, am I like a puppy dog here? And so, and it says, and the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. So Goliath is basically saying to him, you want a piece of me? You want a piece of me? You little punk, come fight me. And then David said to, Philist- to the Philistine, verse 45, You come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. What a great little speech there, huh? Amen. So, I want you to notice what he's saying here. This is another point. It's number five on our list. The battle is the Lord's and so is the glory. In that little speech that I just read to you between verses 45 and 47, six times, six times in three verses, David invokes the name of God. He refers to him as the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, The Lord will deliver you into my hands. There is a God in Israel. The Lord does not save with sword and spear. The battle is the Lord's. And so it is important for us to remember the one fighting our battles. It doesn't, you know, it's not in our strength. 
It's, it's in the strength of the Lord. And David knows this. You know, if he had, if he had gone up, you know, to this nine foot, nine inch giant, and how tall was David? You know, maybe, maybe five feet, five four, like, like the average height of a man in that day was not much more than about five six. So, you know, he's standing there in the shadow of this giant. And if he had said to him, you know, I'm just going to rip your head off. Wait till you see what I can do. You know, like a ninja. If he had done that, like he would have been, he would have been toast. But he knows, like, this is, this is the Lord's doing. And the Lord's going to give the victory here. And so he gives, he gives God the glory because he knows the battle is the Lord's. And so it says, so it was, verse 48, when the Philistine arose and came and drew near David, that David hurled, uh, hurried rather, and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. And then David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and he slung it. And struck the Philistine in his forehead. This is probably would have been the only place on his body that wasn't covered by armor of some kind. Because he has a helmet, he has a coat of mail, and he has a spear and a javelin. Like he's covered up, he's got a shield, he's got an armor bearer with a shield. This is probably the only place that was exposed, and yet with great precision, David goes right for that open place on his forehead. He slung it, and it struck the Philistine in his forehead, so that the stone sank into his forehead. Okay, that's some force, friends. And he fell on his face to the earth. Now, do you know what I find interesting about that? Is that when David, by the ability of the Lord, kills Goliath, Goliath doesn't fall backwards. He falls forward on his face. It's a posture of worship. Do you remember when the, when the Philistines had captured the Ark of the Covenant from the Israeli army and had taken it into their temple of Dagon? Remember that their god was called Dagon. It was half fish, half man, and they worshipped this, this you know, freakish idol. And that when God was getting their attention, Dagon in the temple that they had, the Philistines' temple, Dagon, the statue, kept falling down, and it would always keep falling face forward, face forward, face forward. Because it's God's way of saying, when I defeat the enemy, they're going to know who God is. Like, they're not, they're not just going backwards. He falls forward. And it's kind of like this posture of, of this, um, you know, I'm, I'm yielding to, to the Lord of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so it says, so verse 50, and so David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. But there was no sword in the hand of David. And so, therefore, David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword. This is a huge sword. He takes, he takes Goliath's sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. Yeah, David, David's got some chutzpah, shall we say, right? I mean, he's rolling like New York mafia style, ladies and gentlemen. He's like, I'm going to finish this guy off. I'm not taking any chances. I see that, that my stone that I just slung has sunk way into his forehead. But just to be sure, I'm cutting off this dude's head. And he cuts off his head. He cuts off his head. And when the Philistines, the rest of the army of the Philistines, saw that their champion was dead, they fled. Now the men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines as far as the entrance of the valley and to the gates of Ekron. And the wounded of the Philistines fell along the road to Sharaim, even as far as Gath and Ekron. And then the children of Israel returned from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their tents. And David took, look at this, he took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. But he put his armor in his tent. 
So he takes the, 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 the sword and, and some of the armor off of Goliath. It's like his trophy. But he's got this main tro- trophy, which is Goliath's head. And, you know, and how huge would the head of a man who's nine foot nine been? You know, like the size of a basketball, probably. He's got this huge head, probably holding it by the hair. I know I'm grossing out some of you right now, but, but it's in the Bible. I mean, here it is. So, and then it says, and when Saul saw David going out against the Philistine... He said to Abner, now Abner was his commander of the Israeli army. Abner was also Saul's uncle. He says to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose whose son is this youth? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And so the king said, inquire whose son this young man is. And then as David returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. He's not letting that trophy go, ladies and gentlemen. He's like, I'm bringing this with me wherever I go now. See what I've done? Yeah, this is what the Lord has done through me. Take a look. He brought the head with him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Okay. So now Saul's putting two and two together. Oh, you're the guy that, that played sweet music for me. Oh, you're the guy, the son of Jesse from Bethlehem. Let's go into chapter 18. We'll go just a little ways here. Chapter 18 says, Now when he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Saul took him that day, took David that day, and would not let him go home to his father's house anymore. So, so David's going to enter the, the service of the king. He's going to enter the palace of the king. Verse 3, and then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, even to his sword and his bow and his belt." All right, I want to spend a little bit of time here, and I've got about uh, 14, 15 minutes left. And I don't prefer to spend a lot of time talking about this, but I will, uh, because the homosexual community has hijacked this passage of Scripture to fit their narrative that Jonathan and David had a homosexual relationship. And even liberal theologians in some churches will teach from this passage that that is exactly what is happening here, that they had some kind of a same-sex attraction and that they had something much more than a friendship, that there was this sexual relationship between these two guys. Now, for those of you who are new to our Bible study, Jonathan in this story is the son of King Saul. If anybody should be threatened by David and the victory that he has just had by the grace of God over Goliath, it would be Jonathan, because Jonathan is next in line to be king, except that God has already predetermined that David is going to be king and not Jonathan. But Jonathan, not really understanding all of that, is not um, intimidated here. He's, he, he, you know, he's, he's not insecure. He has a love for David. He even takes off, notice that he takes off his, the, the robes of a prince... And he gives them to David as a way of showing respect and honor to him. It's going to be Jonathan's father, Saul, who's the one who's really uh, intimidated and insecure about David and David's uh, success. But in this passage here, it, it speaks about this love that Jonathan and David had. And a love, it's mentioned twice there, this love. And it, it even speaks about 
uh, a soul, a love that, that even um, meets some kind of a soul need here. So look, one thing that I think is important to understand after having kind of framed how this passage has been hijacked to, to give this narrative of a homosexual relationship, one of the thing that, uh, things that sometimes people have a hard time understanding and I'm going to use this in the context of men, even though this would also apply to women, but I'm only going to use it in the context of men because that's the context here between two men. People have a hard time understanding that real men can have a real love for each other without it being sexual. And there's a closeness and a camaraderie and a bond that men can have, and it is not sexual at all. What is happening here is not a sexual relationship. What is happening here is these are two men. Now, now granted, David is a young man. Jonathan, Jonathan is about 22, maybe as, as much as 30 years older than David. And yet they have mutual respect for one another as warriors. There is something in the way that God has made men to be willing to die for others. And if a man is not willing to die, especially for his wife and for his family, he's not a real man. Like real men are wired intrinsically with a readiness to die. And these are two guys who have this willingness and this readiness and, and, and especially in those kind of circles where men are ready to die for one another. You, those of you who have fought in, in wars, there's a military camaraderie among soldiers and, and sailors and, and uh, people who, who understand combat. Where if you're, if you're willing to die for one another, there is this bond that happens. And again, I'm speaking just in the context for the moment of men to frame this story. But there's a bond that happens between men when you're willing to die for each other and fight for each other and risk your lives for each other. And you see it in military units. You see it often in first responder units. Um, you, you see just on a, on a lesser level where, where you're, not, you're not willing to die for it. But you see it in certain circles uh, where, for example, like just, you know, a, a, a football team where, where men are together and they're, you know, they're, they're working together and playing together and working hard and serving together. You see this kind of camaraderie that is knit. And that's one of the words that is used here, knit. That his Jonathan's soul was knit with David. Well, look, we use that expression. Uh, you know, a family that's really close, we say they're close knit. You know, this is not some sexual thing that is happening here. There is a closeness here that has developed among these two. Now, look, it does say the word love twice, okay? It is the Hebrew word ahav. Ahav. There is a different word that means sexual lust, and that is, it sounds similar, but it's with a G instead of an H. It's agav. Agav in Hebrew means a sexual kind of a lust. Ahav, with an H, A-H-A-V, ahav, or another form of it is ahava. That is a love that, yes, can mean marital love, but more often than not in the Bible... Ahava, and those of you who love like the Dead Sea products, Ahava, that's, that just means love. More often than not, Ahava or Ahav 
translates in the Old Testament as family love, friendship love, even the love of God, the love of neighbor, the love of strangers. And just to, again, because this is a passage that has, that has been hijacked, I just want to spend a couple of minutes just kind of pointing this out with you. And so here's the references. The first time that Ahav appears in the Bible, the word love is mentioned in the Hebrew, Ahav. It's in Genesis 22, verse 2. And it is when Abraham loved Isaac and was prepared to sacrifice him. It's a beautiful picture, by the way, of God the Father ready to sacrifice his son Jesus. And by the way, where that occurred on Mount Moriah when Abraham was ready to sacrifice Isaac in obedience to God, although it never transpired, God was testing his heart. Where that occurred on Mount Moriah is the exact place where the crucifixion of Christ took place. The parallels there are for another Bible study. But when Abraham was ready to sacrifice Isaac, it says for the first time in the Bible, Genesis 22, verse 2, that Abraham loved Isaac, Ahav. It's also used to describe Isaac's love for his son Esau in Genesis 25, 28. It is also used to describe the love for God in Exodus 20, verse 6, where God says he shows mercy to thousands to those who love him and keep his commandments. That's Ahav. It's mentioned in Leviticus 19.18, when the directive is to love your neighbor as yourself, that's Ahav. And even in Deuteronomy 10.19, the love for a stranger, Ahav. So, this is the same word that is being used here in this friendship between Jonathan and David. There's nothing sexual going on here. This is a deep and profound bond that two men have for one another that is glorifying to God that is not sexual. Now, let me just say something while we're on this subject. And this is important for everybody, but this is also particularly important for married couples. If you are married, again, in general, but if you're married, wives need to understand there's a certain need your husband has that you cannot meet. And likewise, man, there's a certain need that your wife has that you cannot meet. And that is for same gender friendship, platonic but deep and profound friendships that happen, okay? Um, my wife and I have come to understand this better as the years have gone on, and we, and we make certain allowances. Like, she can tell, like, you need guy time, don't you? Like, she can start to tell. I'm not telling you that I get irritable or cranky or anything. I'm just saying <laughs> she, can, she can begin to say, you need some guy time, don't you? And, and it's true. There are times I just need... Something that involves dirt or blood, or both. <laughs> dirt or blood. I just, I need to go outside. Listen, you know, it's not just because I'm a guy. I'm also, my dad took a swab of his DNA. We did the whole ancestry thing. I found out we're related to Neil of the Nine Nains in Ireland. He was a king of Ireland in the 6th century AD. He was responsible for killing St. Patrick, okay? It's in my blood. <laughs> I, I got like murderers back in my family tree. We're just going around. It's magically delicious. We're chopping off heads and we're, we're killing people. So, so anyway, so that's, that's going on there too. But I mean, there's a, there's a time when, you know, I just, I need to sweat. I, I need some dirt. I need blood. I need adventure. There's one time, okay, this, and you know, Terry and I laugh about this, but there was one time I played tennis with my wife. One time. We, we were married. We were married like, I don't know, six months. And I did not know how to play gently. I just couldn't do it. There was something about my racket every single time. 
that would just want to cream that ball. And I tried. I just like, uh, how do I just gently, I couldn't even get over the net when I was just trying, how do I just gently lob this over? So I'm like, I'm just going for it. And like, that was the last time we played tennis. <laughs> last time she said, I'm not playing tennis with you anymore. I said, why not? She goes, because you don't, you don't know how to play gently. I was like, okay, it's true. I don't know how to play gently. So that's, that's our story. Like there's just some things. So listen, I, I got a buddy who's asking me, come, um, Come hunt wild boar with me. I said this to Terry the other day. She goes, yeah, he wants me to come hunt wild boar. She goes, what? You're going to die. I said, yeah, that's the opportunity. That's the There's just something there, right? And, I, and I, could not, I could not say to her, I could not say to her, well, why don't you and I go wild boar hunting? You know, that just doesn't, it doesn't work, right? Nor does she have an interest in doing that. So there are just some things that we need to understand the way that God has uniquely made men and the way that God has uniquely made women to celebrate those differences, but also to realize that there's a certain sense of camaraderie and friendship that uh, will only be able to be met in that certain way by a same gender friend. And so um, that's what's happening here. Completely platonic, nothing, nothing uh, lewd or immoral here, as much as, as, much as you're going to hear that. I'm just telling you, I've tried to break it down with you and show you that this word love is used throughout the Old Testament, most often having to do with family love, friendship love, love for God, love for neighbor, love for stranger. This is not agav, this is ahav, and they have a respect for each other as warriors, as men, and it is meeting a need within each of them that is healthy and normal. And so I just want to encourage you in that regard too. You know, ladies, have other lady friends. Men, have other men friends. And do those things that you love to do that, um, that are important to you that, that the other person won't be able to understand. You know, like I don't, I don't understand some of the things that for you ladies uh, is meaningful to you, nor do you always understand some of the things that are meaningful to, to us as guys. But, but respecting that and understanding that God has wired us in unique ways that, um, that are healthy and, and to celebrate that. And so when you read this, and when we get back to it next week, as our time has escaped us, you're, we're reading it with that in mind. This is not some unhealthy, uh, immoral sexual attraction here. This is two men who have respect for each other as warriors, and they have a deep love for each other that meets a certain need and ministers to a soul need in both of them as they have been uniquely wired by God. Everybody understand that? All right, good. Let's pause there and pray. Lord, thank you for this time together in your word. And uh, we just commit this to you. And we just thank you, Lord, for friendships, uh, deep personal friendships that often only come around a couple of times in a lifetime. Thank you, Lord, for, for friends. And um, we thank you for the example of David, who was just a mighty man, courageous, who, who, who wanted to defend your name and how you fought the battle, enabling him to have victory over this enemy, freeing a nation from being enslaved to fear. Lord, free us from our fears of the enemy. And may our confidence be in you, May our strength be in you. Uh, Lord, may our identity be in you. And we love you, Lord, and we praise you, and we thank you together in Jesus' name.
And everybody said, amen, amen. God bless you all.